0: Join with me in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, this morning we come before your throne of grace, and we ask, O oh God, that you would grant to us, in our country, peace during this time in which there is tremendous, tremendous turmoil, violence in the streets. Protests and people who are being hurt. Father, our hearts go out to those who have suffered loss. Father, we pray that your comfort and your peace would be upon them. Father, our hearts go out too to many, as this is such a time of destruction. That our country perhaps has not seen in over a generation. Father, we pray that you would bring about peace, a peace that only you can give. We pray, God, that you would give wisdom, Lord, to our nation's leaders. We pray, Father, for justice. We pray, Father, for your love. We pray, God, that you would bring about stability and peace in our country. Father, many have been suffering already from people that they have loved and lost because of the coronavirus. People have suffered loss because of employment. People have suffered loss in the loss of their business and have many strained relationships. We pray, O God, that you would bring about peace. Father, I pray that you would draw people to yourself. O God in heaven, we ask of these things, knowing that these are unprecedented times. And Father, I pray that you would draw people to yourself, even in the midst of suffering. Father, may we look to you and to your word for wisdom, knowledge in what to do. And we ask, O God, that you would grant to us great, great peace that only you will bring about. We look forward, O God, to the day when you will come again to take us home, that we might experience the joy of reunion with you and with those that we have known in the past who have placed their faith and trust in you. In the meantime, Lord, may we take advantage of this time to share the good news of the hope that we have because, O God, Our hope is not in this world's economy. Our hope is not in this world's governing bodies. Our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope is in you. Father, we pray that you would again grant to us insight into your word, just as we have just sung. Speak, O Lord. We ask, God, that you would speak to us through your word, that we might live as godly citizens of the kingdom. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. If you're turning your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians, our text will come from the book of Philippians. And we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. and We'll be reading through verse 9. Philippians chapter 4 we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes here as he is in prison and he writes in verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore my beloved brethren whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle Spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Last week, we looked at the qualities of one whose walk or their Christian life is worthy of the calling which they have received. We looked at the qualities of humility. We looked at the qualities of gentleness, of patience, of tolerance for one another in love, and of unity as one body under one God. This week, we look at a very similar theme of a Christian's walk in light of the fact that they are a citizen of heaven who stands firm in Jesus. A citizen of heaven who stands firm in Jesus. John Hess Yoder was a missionary in Laos, and he was serving there when he noted how they depicted or understood their citizenship of various countries. Before the colonialists came and set up these geographical boundaries, these national boundaries, the kings of Laos and of Vietnam reached an agreement on taxation in the border areas. And what they did was they distinguished citizens of Laos and citizens of those who were Vietnamese in different ways. If you ate short grain rice, if you built your house on stilts, And you decorated your home with Indian-style serpents, well, you were considered a Laotian. If you, on the other hand, ate long-grain rice, you built your houses on the ground, and you decorated them with Chinese-style dragons, well, you would be considered Vietnamese." It didn't really matter where your house was built in terms of a geographical area. That's not what determined your nationality. What determined your nationality was the characteristics and the cultural values that he or she as a person exhibited. And the question for us then is, if someone were to look at your life, to look at your values, to look at how you spend your time, your money, how you conduct yourself would they be able to tell a difference that you were a citizen of heaven? The Philippians prided themselves really on this idea of citizenship. We find this idea of citizenship back in verse 20. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul reminds them, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippi was a very, very important city in that It was a Roman colony, and the Philippians considered their citizenship very valuable. Colonies like Philippi would consider themselves little Romes. People would enjoy all the rights and privileges that a citizen of Rome would have. Their allegiance would be to Rome. Their allegiance would be to the emperor. They had Roman dress. They adopted Roman names. They spoke Latin, which was the official language of Rome. And if you were a Roman, just like in Greek society, you would be devoted to Rome and to the fact that you were a part of a society at large. Your skills, your talents, your abilities were all given for the greater good of the whole, for the glory of Rome. And there was seen in an individual citizen as an interdependence upon these citizens that they had with each other, all for the glory of Rome. In fact, a person who was a very responsible Roman citizen, would be very careful, very careful not to do anything that would bring shame or disrepute or dishonor to their city lest they be removed from the list of citizens. So to the Philippians, this idea of a citizenship, the great allegiance was very, very important. And so I believe Paul's thought here when he communicates in verse 20 of chapter 3, reminding them that they are a citizen of heaven, is to simply say, just as you are so very careful, just as so very proud to be a Roman citizen, to bring honor and glory to Rome, so much so that you are to remember that you are a citizen of heaven, and your greater citizenship is there. And the message is the same to us. Just as we might be happy to be an American citizen, so too. We are to remember our citizenship is truly a citizen of heaven. And so how should we conduct ourselves as a citizen of heaven? Do we view ourselves as our skills, our talents, our abilities are given for the greater good as a Christian for God's church, or do we view that our citizenship in heaven means that we want to live in such a way never to bring disrepute, never to bring dishonor, never to bring shame to God and his church by the way we act? Philippians 4, he addresses some of these behaviors which would characterize a good Christian citizen of heaven. They would be, as we look at this passage, getting along with others, rejoicing in the Lord, having a gentle spirit, not being filled with anxiety, thinking godly thoughts, and to be an example, a godly example for others to follow. So let's look at each of these in the text in chapter 4, verse 2. Getting along with one another, or living in harmony. He writes here, I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony with the Lord. The first principle that Paul reminds them of in this text is to deal with a problem that was happening in the city of Philippi, in the church at Philippi, that there were these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who were likely well-known in the congregation, that's why Paul would note them, to live in harmony And that phrase means to be of the same mind. We know some things just from the short text that is here, not only that they would have been known within the church, but that they struggled in the cause of the gospel. They were somehow involved in Paul's ministry. These individuals were members of the congregation who were involved in the ministry of Paul. They weren't people who had come from the outside. They weren't false teachers. They weren't of those categories. It seems that these people... These two women were involved. They were genuine Christians whose names, it notes, were in the book of life, and there was some type of conflict. Now, this type of conflict, we can probably surmise that it was not over some doctrinal or theological matter because when there were issues such as that, Paul in his epistles would typically write to correct, and he would write out what was true in order to answer the issue at hand. So we can surmise that this conflict that they were having was not some sort of core issue. It was perhaps some sort of peripheral issue in the church. And thus, we note too in the text that they needed help in resolving this conflict. Paul's message for them is that they are to live in harmony. That they are to get along. Stop fighting. Stop being divided. Stop bickering. And get along. Now, this is not the first time that Paul addresses this issue. I mean, it's very common within the church, but back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, he writes, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Then in the following verse, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. He addresses these things in the epistles as we've seen them. Not just in this letter, but other letters. He addresses things because there is an apparent problem within the church. Make my joy complete. It's not that he didn't have any joy, but his joy was diminished by the very fact that they were not of the same mind, that there was conflict within the church. And the solution to that was to address this sin, which he mentions in chapter 2, there which would be selfishness and conceit. Selfishness and pride, underlying sins that often cause disunity and division. Selfishness says, I want my way. Pride says, my way is the best way. Now, that might be true. Somebody's way might be the best way, but often it doesn't consider the interests of others, which Paul also writes about in Philippians 2. You know, some people can be very difficult to work with. Many of you perhaps remember in the times when you were back in school or maybe at work when you've had to work with groups or you've had to work with teams. Perhaps you know that there are some who are more easier to work with than others. Some people are poor listeners. They have a lot to say, but they listen little. Other people have a communication style in which they like to argue or debate. There are those who always like to correct someone else. Some people lack empathy, or they're inconsiderate, or they're not very understanding. Some people, in the way that they communicate, they communicate in a way that's brash, or rash, or abrasive. Some people, when you say A, they always say B. They always have the opposite view of what you would say. Some people are frequently angry, frequently bitter, Some people lack social skills. Other people are very judgmental. And we are hard to get along with. And all of us know people who fall in some category at some time of being difficult to get along with. Why? Because all we have to do is look at ourselves. We ourselves are often the problem, aren't we? We ourselves are often the type that have a difficulty getting along with others. And again... Many who have worked on a team or a group find that it's very difficult sometimes. But in the church, God calls us to live in harmony. He calls Iodia and Syntyche, they need help to get along. And we're not talking about here, once again, of some type of unrepentant sin or false teaching. We're talking about some sort of peripheral issue that was not core, that was an issue that Paul said, you know what? Just live in harmony. Get along. Getting along is not just important in the church, but getting along is important in our community, getting along in our families. You know, over the years, I've had students who have really had struggles, and it's probably very common, struggles with their siblings. Maybe they have a brother or sister, older or younger, and they simply don't get along sometimes, and they are very distraught over how their other sibling might be acting. And again, it's fairly common, but I've reminded them, you know what, you'd better learn to get along now. Because someday your parents aren't going to be around, and someday you're going to be older, and someday your siblings will be your family that you'll see or communicate with Over time, and you don't want to have a lifetime of strained relationships because friends will come and go, but there are family that will always be family. So, the first characteristic of a person who is a good citizen of heaven is to get along with one another. The second is that of rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. Verse 4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, this is not a suggestion. It's not merely a feeling, it is a command. Joy is a recurring theme in the book of Philippians. In fact, if you wanted to characterize the book of Philippians, it would probably be characterized by Paul's joy. It's not happiness, which comes from the word happenings, which happens to be among the category of circumstances. In other words, we're happy when our circumstances are are good. But joy here is an abiding joy in the Lord, that God is God, and God grants this joy that is enduring. And this is joy in the Lord. It's in God. It's in who God is. It's what God has done through the Philippians and the greatness of God. That's what Paul is thinking of. In Philippians chapter 1, back in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it says this. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, when Paul begins his letter, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. When Paul thought of the Philippians, in Paul's memory, he thanked God. He thanked God. His heart was just filled with thanksgiving. What did Paul think of? Well, perhaps in the, when we look at the scriptures, these are the thoughts that flooded Paul's mind. He perhaps thought of Lydia and the very first convert in all of Europe. When we look at the book of Acts, during Paul's second missionary journey, he was directed by the Spirit of God to go to Macedonia, where he met a group of women who had gathered outside the city to pray because there was no synagogue there, so they were having some sort of study, perhaps learning from some uh, past rabbi's teaching or something like that. And in that group, there was a woman named Lydia. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And do you know what? She was saved. She and her household were saved, and they became the very first Christian converts in all of Europe. The very first church was going to begin there. She would ask Paul to be her guest. They would visit her, and her generosity and her hospitality had thought that the church would gather in her house. That would bring great joy to the missionary to think of Lydia and what God did through her and the Philippians there. Perhaps he thought about God's power. Perhaps he thought about God's power because he remembered too in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 18, when there was a demonically possessed girl who was following Paul and following Silas around, and she was crying out, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And Paul turns around and casts that demon out of that girl. Well, I'm sure that brought great joy to Paul to see the power of God as that demon left that girl, freed her from the bondage of that possession. Of course, that didn't make her masters very happy. They incited the people against Paul and Silas and had them thrown in prison. But maybe one of his... Thoughts of great joy was not just Lydia and the first church, not just God's power through through this demonically possessed girl, but also through what happened in prison. Even while he was in prison in stocks, they weren't bemoaning their terrible circumstances. Paul and Silas were sitting there in stocks, and the text tells us that they were singing hymns of praise to God, even in their difficult situation. And what did God do? God released them from prison, and God turned the heart of that Philippian jailer and his entire household and saved them. Perhaps that was in the mind of Paul too that would have brought him great joy. And perhaps lastly, Paul would remember the missionary support that he received from the Philippian church. The Philippian church was the only one Though they were impoverished, they helped him financially after he left Macedonia. All of these things in the heart and the memory of Paul, Paul would remember and therefore he would write, whenever I think of you, whenever I pray for you, I think these thoughts and I am thankful for you and they bring me great joy in the Lord. One commentator writes this, having a genuine desire To remember and focus on the goodness, kindness, and successes of others does not involve denying their weakness and shortcomings, but rather looking past them. The Holy Spirit prompts believers to appreciate others' love, generosity, and compassion, and to forget the rest. On the other hand, a person who constantly focuses on the negatives, faults, shortcomings, and slights of others is a person not controlled by the Holy Spirit and perhaps is an unbeliever. Bitterness, resentment, a critical spirit, holding grudges, and the like are works of the flesh, not of the Spirit." If you're not a person who has an abiding joy in your heart, let me ask you, what is it that fills your mind? What is it that fills your heart? Are they thoughts that are negative, critical of others, judgmental, angry, resentful, holding some grudge? Or are they thoughts that would have filled like the thoughts of Paul's mind, perhaps thoughts of God's power when he worked in somebody's life, Perhaps of God's grace and salvation and saving someone. Perhaps God's provision and how God has provided for you in the past. Perhaps it is about God's church, by which we can all have joy that God has saved you to be a part of his church. The Bible tells us that we are to rejoice in the Lord. So, what is the characteristic of a good, godly citizen of heaven? that of getting along with others, that of rejoicing in the Lord. Thirdly, have a gentle spirit. Have a gentle spirit. Let your gentle spirit, verse 5, be known to all men. The word gentle in this context has this rich meaning, and it is hard to encapsulate in just one English word. So what does it mean? It can be rendered as generosity, goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, charity towards the faults of others. Mercy towards the failures of others, indulgence of the failures of others, leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and gentleness are some of the attempts to capture this particular word. A humble, gentle spirit that is gracious towards others. That is the kind of spirit that endures difficulties that overlooks faults. You know, many of you are familiar with a college basketball coach whose name was John Wooden. He's probably one of the most well-known college basketball coaches. And in Robert Morgan's book, Worry Less, Live More, he relates a story about what John Wooden would say. John Wooden would talk about sometimes his past and he recalled on a particular occasion back when he grew up in his rural Indiana County, what they would do when John Wooden was a boy was that they would hire these farmers. They would hire these local farmers who would take these teams of mules or horses, and they would take these teams of mules or horses, and the horses would pull a cart, uh, and this cart would be filled with gravel. And sometimes in these gravel pits, sometimes they would be... uh, Pits were sometimes deeper or steeper than others, and sometimes it was hard for a team to pull a wagon that was filled with gravel up the side through the wet sand and up the steep incline. There was one summer day that Wooden wrote when he was watching this young farmer. This young farmer was trying to get his team of horses to pull this fully loaded, fully loaded wagon of gravel up the steep side, and he was whipping the horses. He was cursing at these plow horses who were beautiful. These horses were frothing at the mouth. They were stomping. They were pulling back from him. When John Wooden's dad, who was watching for a while, he went over to the young man who was the one who was so frustrated with his horses, and he said, let me take them for you. And his dad just began to talk to the horses, almost whispering to them, stroking their noses with a soft touch. And then he walked between them, holding their bridles and bits, and he continued talking with them calmly, gently, as they settled down. And then gradually he stepped out in front of them and gave a little whistle to start them moving forward while he guided their reins, And within moments, those two big plow horses pulled that wagon up out of the gravel pit as easy as it could be, as if they were happy to do it. And John Wooden said, quote, I'd never forget what I saw him do and how he did it. Over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders act like that angry young farmer who lost control. So much more can usually be accomplished by dad's calm, confident, and steady approach. And he said this, he said this was the indelible lesson, quote, it takes strength inside to be gentle on the outside. Think about that. Do you exhibit your character as a person who is gentle? Some people believe that Strength on the outside means that you're going to be one who is intimidating, who is forceful, who's angry, who yells, screams, who has a temper, who forces things to go their way, perhaps, when real strength is that which is able to be under control, able to exhibit gentleness. In fact, this gentle spirit that Paul calls upon here is to be known to all people. If others were to be asked about you, would they describe you as a gentle person? Would others say that you're humble and you're gracious and you're loving, or that you are forbearing, that you're patient with others? A citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It is to be a person who gets along with others, who rejoices in the Lord, and who has a gentle spirit. Fourthly, that they are not filled with anxiety. Do not be anxious. Now, this little phrase here begins, if you look at your Bibles in verse 5, there's a little phrase there. It says, The Lord is near. It makes a lot more sense when that's connected with verse 6. The Lord. Apologize for that. The scriptures tell us in verse 5 that there's a little phrase, the Lord is near. That makes a lot more sense when it goes with verse 6 rather than verse 5. It says, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything. We're not to be a people who are filled with anxiety, not to be a people who are filled with worry. Psalm 145:18 says, the Lord is close to all and to all who call upon him. You know, according to Harvard Business Review, there's a percentage of medical offices that they've had some type of study where the number of medical office visits made for stress-related symptoms are somewhere between 60 and 90 percent. C.H. Spurgeon in his faith checkbook says, quote, it is always weakness to be fretting and worrying, questioning and mistrusting. What can we do if we wear ourselves to skin and bone? Can we gain anything by fearing and fuming? Do we not unfit ourselves for action and unhinge our minds for wise decision? We are sinking by our struggles when we might float by faith. Oh, for grace to be confident in God. The question that we have for us is, are we sinking in our struggles? Instead, we're called here in the text to pray. We're called to pray to God, to give thanks to God in prayer. God already knows your need. He already knows my need. God already knows our burdens. He simply wants you and I to come and ask of him. But in everything, it says in the text, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens? And the peace of God, and I love the King James Version, that transcends all understanding, This peace that comes from God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts, will surround your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. That is the type of peace that God only can give when we call upon God. And it's not just asking God for that which we need, but it's also giving thanks to God, to be thankful to God. And God grants a peace that only he can give that will guard your heart, that will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. And that leads us to the fifth point. Getting along with others, rejoicing in the Lord, having a gentle spirit, not being anxious. Fifthly, to think godly thoughts, to think godly thoughts. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if anything is excellent, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You know, we live in a world today that it's easy to escape reality, isn't it? I mean, there are plenty of, of video games that people can play that take hours away from their time and they can become addicted to. There are plenty of fantasy role-playing games, plenty of movies and TVs by which we take our mind, and entertainment that takes our mind away from that which is true. There are plenty of things where people can go to conferences for science fiction, for comics, for superheroes, for whatever it might be. And on the Internet, there is plenty of fake news, and lots of things to take our mind away from that which is reality. The first thing the scriptures tell us, is that we are to think about things that are true. We're to fill our minds with things that are true, admirable, praiseworthy. One of the latest issues is that we're facing today is this whole thing about censorship. In the news, we find that about censorship, we would never know what is true without the scriptures. If the scriptures were not here, we would be wondering what exactly would be true, and we would be swimming in a sea of unknowns. It is imperative that we know what is true. Related to God, related to reality, related to the truth that God reveals about himself. A definition of truth would be truth is the self-expression of God. A definition of truth would be that which is consistent with the mind, the will, the character, the glory, and being of God. And that is expressed in the word of God itself. A.W. Tozer tells us about the importance of what we think about God. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The Bible tells us that what is honorable, what is right, what is pure and lovely and good repute, excellent, worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You know, when I was a a little boy, I would read the comics, and um, one of the comics that I would read would be Garfield, and, uh, you know, Garfield never spoke, but you always knew what he was thinking, and they would have these little, little bubbles upside his head, and there would be this little cloud. And this little cloud above his head would contain what he was thinking. In fact, that's how all the animals were because they couldn't speak. They would have these thoughts above their head. And I remember being a little boy on the playground thinking to myself, I wonder if that really happens. I wonder if perhaps people can possibly see what I'm thinking, that there's this little cloud I'm walking around with and everybody could think or see what I was thinking. And I concluded to myself that if they could see what I was thinking, I'd better be thinking good thoughts. In fact, the Bible says it has to be excellent, praiseworthy, admirable. If somebody were able to see my thoughts, I would want to think a thought that would say to somebody else, that is such a good thought. I'd want to think that as well course, that little thought, as I was a little boy on the playground running around thinking those kind of thoughts to myself, I realized that that really wasn't true, because what was it, somehow they could see my thoughts and I couldn't see theirs? Well, that sort of thing should be, in case that what is true, what is trustworthy, what is excellent, what is worthy of praise, that whole list of things should answer for us All of those enduring questions that are often asked about, is this type of entertainment good to watch? Is that type of music good to listen to? Are those books good for my mind? What kind of teaching am I feeding my mind? It's not pleasing to the Lord if we feed our minds bad media, terrible music, false messages, garbage, or whatever it might be. We should be thinking thoughts that are godly. We should be thinking thoughts that are godly. In fact, if you think about it, you ask yourself, what does God think about? What does God think about? God necessarily thinks about himself and his own glory because God must think about the highest thoughts that he can think of, and that would be of his own glory of himself. Robert Morgan he provides this little illustration in his writing entitled Moments of Reflection, Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. He writes about President Harry Truman. President Harry Truman was the 33rd president. He was the president between 1945 and 1953. And President Truman uh, was always concerned about losing touch with the public, you know, being the president of the United States. Well, there was a day back when days were simpler, when the president could just go out and take a walk by himself, and you know, sit down with the everyday person, etc. And so one day, one evening, President Truman he decided to take a walk down to the Memorial Bridge on the Potomac River, and he was curious as to the mechanism at which uh, that caused the bridge to raise and lower. And so what he did was he made his way past the catwalk there and. He came upon the person who was tending the bridge. And that man was eating his evening supper out of this tin bucket. And when he came up to this man, this man showed absolutely no surprise when he looked up and he saw the best-known man, the most powerful man in the world. That man who was just eating his dinner out of that tin bucket just swallowed his food and wiped his mouth, smiled and said, You know, Mr. President, I was just thinking about you. According to Truman's biographer, David McAuliffe, it was a greeting that Truman adored and he never forgot. You know, Mr. President, I was just thinking about you. You know, if God were to pay you a surprise visit at home, or at your workplace, or as a student in the classroom, Jesus were to sit down right beside you, would you be able to say, you know, Lord, I was just thinking about you. What is it that fills your mind? Are you thinking godly thoughts? Are you thinking thoughts that are admirable? The Christian citizen of heaven gets along with others, rejoices in the Lord, has a gentle spirit, is not filled with anxiety, and thinks godly thoughts. And lastly, becomes a godly example for others to follow. Verse 9. These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul led by his example. He led by his devotion. He led by his vision. He led by his his, dedication, dedication. And his sacrifices for the sake of the gospel are well known there in the New Testament, all for the glory of God. To the Corinthians, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And it's not just the things he taught, but it was the person that he was. You know, this past week, we watched the funeral. Of Ravi Zacharias. If you're not familiar with him, he is perhaps one of the greatest apologists of our time. At the funeral service, there were testimonies by people such as Tim Tebow, people such as Vice President Mike Pence, by Louis Giglio, close friends, family members, video testimonies, and at the funeral, there were many testimonies of the life and the devotion of Ravi Zacharias. His humility, his impact upon others, his evangelistic spirit, and his love for the lost. He traveled some 200 days out of the year preaching and teaching. He would chase down skeptics who are not the nicest when they ask questions, who would run out, or would be abusive, or whatever it might be, and he would desire to win them to Jesus. And he loved these people who were lost. And he loved answering their questions. Vice President Mike Pence quoted Ravi as saying, I have reminded myself over the years to never forget that behind every question is a questioner. And behind every questioner is a network of assumptions, hurts, struggles, and often prejudices. Louis Phillips, who was a speaker for RZIM, said... He was a man of character who answered questions with poise and grace. But the thing that impacted me most every time I was around Ravi, I just wanted to know Christ more. He was buried on May 21st, just a little over a week ago, in a casket that was built by the inmates of Louisiana State Penitentiary also known as Angola Prison. That was his request that he had made years ago because he said, quote, These prisoners know that this world is not their home and that no coffin could ever be their final destination. Jesus assures us of that. Such is the gospel story. You know, I have been to many funerals over the years, I've been to many funerals. Even as a young person, I used to go to funerals of people I didn't know because the Lord said, weep with those who weep. I've heard many eulogies, many testimonies of people and their lives. And they're very good. They're very good testimonies about their favorite foods, about where they traveled to, often about how hardworking they were, how they cared for their family, even lessons that they taught. And those are good memories but as a christian what would your eulogy be what would people say about you would they talk about primarily how much you loved the lord jesus how much you would praise god and they praise god because of you because of your selfless sacrifice how much will people want to follow your teaching your life example Will the people say, like in verse 9, the things that we have heard from you, received and heard, practice those things. What would your eulogy be like? What will people say about you? Will they say, as one of the speakers says, the more I was with you, I wanted to know Christ more? That's what we're to be. We're to be model citizens of God's kingdom by living in harmony with others, by rejoicing in the Lord, by having a gentle spirit, by not being filled with anxiety, but people who pray and are thankful to think godly thoughts and to be an example by which others follow. Would that be you? Would they be able to tell by your values, by your lifestyle, just as they would for those who were Laotian and those who were Vietnamese before the colonial days. They'd just be able to look at you and say you are a citizen, not of this world, but of someplace else, and you'd be able to tell them that is heaven. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your graciousness towards us, we ask, God, that you would continue, Lord, to mold us and make us into model citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we might behave in a way, that we might conduct our lives in a way that is honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, just as we have sung, that you will lead people from every tongue and tribe and nation all across the land, all across the world, to yourself. We pray, God, during this time of turmoil, that we would be people who exemplify a peace, a gentleness. Desire, Father, for you to draw all people to yourself, that, Lord, your justice, your righteousness, and, Father, your grace and mercy might be seen by all. We pray, O Father, once again, may you continue to bless our lives, draw our hearts together, as Father, we desire to bring you honor and glory as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. For we look forward to when you will come to take us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, we're thankful that you've joined us for our live stream. We encourage you to check into our website from time to time at livinghopebible.org. You can sign up for our e-newsletter, at our website or send an email to info at livinghopebible.org and we look forward to seeing you again. Lord bless you.